Welcome, I'm Luke Worsfold and this is the Lisa Podcast. Okay, so yeah, welcome Glenn um, yeah, to the podcast. You're obviously the author of a book called yeah, Never Binge Again um, and you've had over 25,000 downloads. Um, obviously our podcast, we talk about uh, addiction and that sort of stuff. So how do you find um, yeah, like overeating and your own journey through sort of binging relates to that sort of thing? I could tell you all sorts of things about that. We, we've had 200,000 downloads, by the way. Um, so, okay. So I, I was, I'll start with my own journey so that you don't just think that I'm a psychologist sitting in my ivory tower trying to figure this out. Um, I was what you would call an exercise bulimic in my youth. So what that means is that I, I couldn't, I couldn't stick my finger down my throat. I just couldn't do it. But I figured out at six foot four and being reasonably muscular that if I exercise for two or three hours a day, every day, that I could eat whatever I wanted to. And I'm talking like 6,000, 7,000 calories, like boxes of Pop-Tarts and, you know, two whole pizzas and, um, you know, uh, boxes of munchkins and potato chips, whatever I wanted to, I could eat when I was a kid. And I I didn't really think it was a problem. I thought it was more like a superpower. but as I got older and I got married and I got my degree and I started seeing patients, I didn't have two or three hours to exercise every day. And my metabolism was not that of an adolescent anymore. And I found that I couldn't stop thinking about food. I couldn't stop eating the five, six, 7,000 calories a day. Um, and I got fat. I, um, I gained 50, 60 pounds over time. The doctors were yelling at me that my triglycerides were going to kill me before I was 40. I think it was, um, I have a test that says 826, I believe, but I believe it was higher than 1,000 at one point. And um, I couldn't stop, you know, and here I was, I was working with suicidal people. I was working with couples who were trying to recover from an affair, things where you had to be very present as a psychologist. And being a psychologist is very important to me because I, I was um, brought up in a family of 17 therapists, so it was always the thing that I wanted to do. But I felt like I was out of integrity because I couldn't be present with anybody, and uh, or not fully present. And it was driving me crazy, so I, I went on a search. Um, like everybody in our culture does, I tried to figure out how to love myself then, and I, I funded my own study that looked at the relationship between foods that people craved and had trouble with versus areas of life that they were satisfied with or personality variables and found all sorts of important things like, um, oh, people that struggle with chocolate like I did, they tended to be lonely or heartbroken. And people who struggled with salty, crunchy things tended to be very stressed at work. And people who struggled with um, bread and pasta and soft, floury things tended to be stressed at home. And I figured that, wow, that was going to be the solution because now that I know that there's something that I have to figure out about my own personal heartbreak, then all I need to do is fix that and I'll stop binging. Well, so I talked to my mom, who was a therapist and was there in my upbringing. And, you know, yes, I was unhappy in my marriage. I'm divorced now. Um, but I talked to my mom and she told me this story about when, when she was um, very young and I was a very small toddler, I would come crying to her, but she didn't have have the wherewithal to hold me and love me all the time and feed me because her father was missing. 
My dad was a captain in the army. She was afraid he was going to be sent to Vietnam. She thought he was going to die and she was going to be all alone. Um, and she just didn't have it. And I, you know, I forgive her for that. And so what she did is she put a, um, she took a bottle of chocolate Bosco syrup. You probably don't know what that is because you look pretty young. Um, but it was a brand back in the 1960s. I'm dating myself. And she put it in a refrigerator on the floor. And I would just go. She would say, Glenn, go get your Bosco. And I would go and I would suck on the bottle of chocolate syrup on the floor. And you'd think that, well, there's the connection, right? Like, that's the match. And so now I should be able to, now that I know where the match was struck, the fire should be out. But it turns out that when you know where the match was struck, that doesn't really put out the fire. Being a detective is not what solves it. Being a fireman is what solves it. And, and the reason is that there was this crazy voice in my head that said, you, you know, Glenn, you're right. You're, um, your mom didn't love you enough. Your mama didn't love you enough, and she left, um, she left this great big hole inside of you. And until you figure out how to find the love of your life and solve all of that heartbreak, we're just going to have to go right on binging on chocolate. And besides, chocolate comes from a plant. Uh, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean, and cocoa beans come from a plant, and so chocolate's a vegetable anyway, right? So, so <laughs> there's, this, there's this crazy voice inside of me um, that makes it OK. And I found the same thing when I work with my clients, that there was this crazy voice inside of them. So it, it wasn't that they needed to nurture their inner wounded child more in order to begin to abstain. It was um, that they had to learn how to deal with that voice. And there was a, um, there's an alternative addiction treatment body of literature um, headed up by a man named Jack Trampy at Rational Recovery. And this is kind of the opposite of the 12 steps, by the way. So if, if you're listening, I know this is an addiction podcast. If you're listening and the 12 steps are working for you, um, you can slap me if you want to, but, but um, you, know, you don't have to stop doing the 12 steps if they're working for you. I, I support you to do that. But they don't work for a lot of people. And, and it seems like the reason is that the seed of addiction really is the lizard brain, right? There, there are all of these, especially with food addiction, there are all of these substances that are engineered by big food and big advertising to push your evolutionary buttons. So there, and I used to consult. I did tens of millions of dollars of consulting for um, Fortune 100 companies, among them some of the top food companies in the world. And I can tell you for a fact that they've got a fortune and all these really intelligent people working on engineering um, concentrated sources of starch and sugar and oil and excitotoxins and salt and, and chemicals and anything that you can think of to artificially stimulate your pleasure centers. And there's all this animal research that almost definitively proves, you can't ever definitively prove anything, but really almost definitively proves that if you artificially stimulate the pleasure center in the mammalian brain, it results in self-neglect. So for example, um, there were all these rat studies, not necessarily ethical from an animal rights point of view, but they were done in the 50s. And they wired electrodes into the brains and the pleasure centers of these rats. And they let the rats push a lever to self-stimulate those pleasure centers. And it turns out that those rats would press the lever thousands of times a day. They would, starving rats would avoid food to press the lever thousands of times a day. They would risk death by pressing the lever thousands of times a day. Nursing mother rats would abandon their pups to press the lever thousands of times a day. Um, rats would cross painful electrical grids 
to press the lever thousands of times a day. The pleasure center is it, man. That's, 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 that's what we're looking to stimulate. And when you give the rats the pleasure button, they engage in extreme self-neglect. I think that's what's happening in our society. I think that our society has engineered pleasure buttons for our lizard brain. And, and so the problem is when the lizard brain sees the pleasure, it, um, the lizard brain doesn't really know love. It doesn't know, um, it doesn't know spirituality. It doesn't know creativity. It doesn't know soulfulness. What the lizard brain knows is eat, mate, or kill. Um, eat, mate, or kill. It's the mammalian brain that thinks about the impact on the herd, on the tribe, on our loved ones. And it's the logical brain on top of that, the neocortex, that can inhibit both of them for the purpose of long-term goals and dreams and spirituality and music and you know everything that we think of as a human contribution to society, that all comes from the, the neocortex up here. So when you, when you put it all together, what seems to happen for a lot of people at the moment of impulse is that the lizard brain says, chocolate is a vegetable, come on, there's something, I, I gotta eat it, gotta eat it, gotta eat it, because um, there's this pleasure button in the environment. And if our paradigm for a lot of people is to open themselves up to love themselves more, because we're trying to nurture our inner wounded child, if that's the paradigm, then what, what happens is it kind of knocks out the knocks out the mammalian brain, knocks out the neocortex and um, the logical brain, and what you're left with is a lizard in control. And that's why people feel like they weren't there during a binge. That's why they feel like they went unconscious. That's why they feel like they're of two minds. They've got their higher self and their lower self, and the part that wants to abstain and the part that wants to go bam. Um, so, you know, after 30 years of going to doctors and Overeaters Anonymous and you know, all sorts of um, psychiatrists and talking to all of my psychologist friends, trying to figure this out, which I, I learned a lot of things from. I mean, that talk with my mom was very soulful and it heartful and it, I forgive myself and I forgive her because of it. So we have a better relationship and I feel more at peace with myself, but it didn't solve the addiction. What, what really solved it for me was working with a lizard brain. Here's how I did it. And this is the part that people think is ridiculous. And I know I look like a sophisticated psychologist and I've got a best-selling book, um, but I did it in a very primitive way. I said, this thing here, the lizard brain, this is my pig. Um, what it's squealing for is pig slop. So I'm going to make a clear line on the sand. I'm going to say, I will never eat chocolate on weekdays again. I'll only ever eat chocolate on, on Saturdays again, Saturday or Sunday. And whenever I hear a little voice in my head that says chocolate is a vegetable or come on, you can have it and it's a Wednesday, I know that that's pig squeal. That's my pig squealing for it. It's looking for pig slop. I don't eat pig slop. I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And that was it. And, and as primitive and crude as that sounds for someone like me to say, what it really did, for all the other attempts were attempts to love myself more. And this this particular model helped me to separate from the lizard brain at the moment of impulse. So I kind of wake up and remember who I am and what I want to accomplish and what my goals were as a human being, not as a, not as a lizard or a pig. And, um, and that's what worked for me over time. I took a little while to play with the rules and then I worked with clients about it and then I, I kept the journal for five years. I wound up editing it into a crazy book about me versus the pig, and then it became a bestseller, unbeknownst to me. So what are you going to do? No, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting story. 
Um, and I would, I would agree to a lot of um, extent my sort of um, way of getting over my own addictions perhaps is a similar sort of process, but I would call it like meditation um, that I would use to control that voice where I'd have the lizard brain would come in and say, look, you need to use or you need to do this or X, Y and Z, I'd call that person rather than a pig. It'd be like the addict who needs to be sort of locked in jail and do his press ups and stay over there. But the way I would deal with that impulse in the moment um, is to like use meditation. So I'd recognize as a thought and I'll just let it go. And I'll say, right, exactly. my brain says you go and use this drug, but then I just let it go and, and, and just let it sort of shift off and focus on my higher self, like you said. It's, it's actually a really interesting point because what my mindfulness teacher buddies have pointed out is that this is really a hack to hear the monkey mind. If you make a really clear rule and you know that any voice that suggests that you break that rule uh, is something you want to dissociate from, really what you're doing is very much what they do in Eastern meditation to observe the monkey mind and just separate from it and let it go. Um, so it is actually very similar. Yeah, yeah. so you learn in meditation, like you are not your thoughts, um, you have yes. thoughts, um, and then, then you start to learn to sort of di dissociate what you're thinking from who you are. Yeah, Yeah, because we, we um, most of my life I was a thinking thing, like Descartes might say, um, and I didn't really understand that there was something beyond that. Even as a psychologist, I didn't really understand that, that there was a being thing that could let go of all the thoughts and was really just kind of underneath a, a presence. And what I found was that when I got the addiction out of the way, even in my weird way of doing it, that I was just much more present. And I, I now feel like I'm, I'm much more present in the universe as a being thing rather than you know, just this kind of professor that put it all together and solve jigsaw puzzles. Yeah, yes, yeah, really interesting. Yeah. And you said, um, like, do you still think that you have the childhood trauma, if you like, or the wounded child? Do you still think he needs to be fixed, or do you think it purely can be solved through understanding the patterns of, of the monkey brain? I, th I think it's a, I think they're separate endeavors. I, I think that um, investigating what match what match was struck and who struck the match and where it was struck to start the addiction raging. I think that that's a valuable endeavor um, as long as you separate it from actually putting out the fire. And so I'm, you know, I'm still a psychologist. I, what I offer with Never Binge Again is not psychology because it's outside the standards of care of my practice. And, you know, I'm standing up and saying, oh, I had a pig inside me. And <laughs> so it's not really something I want to do under my license. But um, I still am a psychologist. And I think that a lot of the purpose of getting your inner pig out of your way and being more present is so that you can be with your feelings. You can experience all of your feelings and, um, and, and you know, sit with them as an adult as opposed to where they came from when you were a child and then examine you know, what happened and why did you start these patterns in the first place. And I think there's a lot of healing that can be done with that. I think it's entirely possible, however, to stop overeating and binge eating without healing your inner child. I don't know why you wouldn't want to heal your inner wounded child, but I think it is possible to do that. There's one more point, Luke, if I could just go on for a moment. Oh, go ahead, yeah. So people often tell me that they're binging for comfort or they're binging to numb out or, um, or that, that they're binging because they have these feelings they don't want to have. And 
it's very true that when you overload your body with um, substances that don't belong there, or even just too much healthy food and you overload the digestive system with a task that it's not prepared to, to attend to, that the nervous system diverts its energy and it's not able to conduct the emotions at the level where it can when you are eating healthfully or have an empty stomach. And, and so, you know, abstinence does result in a higher level of emotionality. It does. However, and, and, and binging does result in a numbing of the emotions. It does. But people make the mistake, I think, of thinking that that's the only reason that they're eating. They're eating for comfort. They're eating for stress. They're eating to numb out. Really, they're eating to get high with food. The, the things that most people binge on are things that didn't exist on the savanna. They were not in the tropics. They're not things that we naturally evolved to, to be with. They're concentrated sources of pleasure that don't exist in nature. And another word for that is a drug. And I think that it's valuable for people to reframe what they're doing with food from thinking that they're just eating comfort food. Because when you say you're eating comfort food, really what you're doing is you're giving into your pick. Like your pick is going, I'm so unhappy. And the only thing that's going to make it better is some you know, pasta and pizza and pastries and sugar. Go get it for me. When, when you're, well, I've learned to be a little dramatic on these things sometimes. <laughs> um, you get people's attention. When you're, you're leaving yourself vulnerable to your inner pig if you do that. You're leaving yourself very vulnerable if you say, well, I'm just eating for comfort. I'm eating for, for stress. If you say, no, I'm actually eating to get high with food. Um, it introduces a whole different paradigm. Most people don't want to think of themselves eating to get high with food. And so they'll think twice about whether they're going to let their pig out at that point. And it also introduces a paradigm where you understand you know, like, like there, there is no physiological replacement for drugs, right? Like, like there's not really a concentrated source of pleasure like heroin. You know, I've never done heroin, but I've talked to a lot of people who have. Um, there's not a similar source in nature for a chocolate bar, right? All the sugar and oil and... Um, and you know, stimulants concentrated in one place. I mean, you could chew on cacao leaves and things like that, but there's not really an equivalent in nature. And so to recover, you have to accept that what you're looking for is to kill the craving and to seek contentment more so than the high. So it's a much more, it's a much more even life where you're kind of steadily climbing and improving your life rather than all of these ridiculous ups and downs, which actually go ups and downs and down and down and down. Um, so reframing things from emotional eating to eating to get high um, puts people on the right path towards making that that better choice. So your turn. Yeah, and so, so you sort of see the correlation between um, food being like an addiction and like you say, it's, it's more of a higher rather than just eating for the sake of it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Now, now, I think people, the difference with food versus the other addictions, like they... The things that Jack Trimpey works with mostly, I think, best are the black and white addictions like drugs and alcohol or cigarettes, the things you can give up entirely. Um, like they say in Overeaters Anonymous, if you want to abstain from food, you're still going to have to take the lion out of the cage and walk it around the block three times a day. So I, I believe that people have to def come to their own definition of what healthy eating is. 
Um, I give them several categories of rules they might consider, like what are some things you will never do, what are some things you always want to do, what are some things that you'll only do under certain conditions, and what are some things you can do whenever you want to. And I like them to think them through like that, and at the end of the interview I can tell you where to get a, a template that they can work with like that. Um, but I think it's important that people take control of their own food plans and determine for themselves, because otherwise, the inner pig is always thinking, you know, that particular diet guru's plan is okay, but it's really not perfect for us. And until we find one that is, we're just going to have to keep on binging. Whereas by the time someone has had enough trouble to listen to an interview like this, they probably know what it means to eat healthy. You know, most of my clients will say, I've read so many diet books, I've talked to so many people, I've talked to nutritionists, I know what it means to eat healthy. I just can't beat this thing inside of me that says go binge. And I tell them, well, that's okay. You're supposed to be of two minds. Let's start with even one healthy rule. What's, what's your worst, your single worst trigger food and behavior? Let's make a rule for that. Once that rule is drawn on the sand and it's really crystal clear, there's no ambiguity, then let's listen for what's your, you don't have to call it a pig. You can call it your inner slacker. Some women call it their inner B-I-T-C-H. Um, let's listen for what it says and then learn to ignore it. And let's, let's just play this game for a little while and get your sense of uh, hope and enthusiasm and power back about this so that you know you can do it. Yeah, so it's more of a, a gradual process of controlling what you put in your body. Whereas with perhaps addiction, it's more like you can go to rehab and in a 30-day treatment plan, you may or may not be fixed. Do you think other black and white addictions should be solved more in this way? Or do you think it's more black and white with those yeah, types of addiction? Well, um... I mean, there are more people who quit the black and white addictions on their own than via the treatment programs. And it, I'm always hesitant when I talk about this because they, like the scientific evidence for sustained permanent abstinence from um, the addiction treatment is not really very good. Nevertheless, there are people who really feel like their life was saved from it, so I don't want to, I don't want to undermine what's working for them. Um, so I will say that I don't, I don't personally direct people to treatment programs, um, but when they are there and it's worked, that I try to sustain them in that, in that milieu. So what sort of, um, yeah, like would, would your view be on addiction, if that makes sense? How would you sort of yeah, solve the problem if you wouldn't refer them to a treatment plan? How would you work with someone? Well, I, I would, well, first of all, I, I don't work with people in regards to drugs and alcohol. I send them over to... Jack Shrimpy's site, um, to the rational.org, rational I think it is. So I, I would send them there. Um, I would work with them about the psychology behind the addiction if they want to, once they've made a, an aggressive determination to stop and they're you know, on their way to being abstinent, I would, I would work with them about the feelings they're experiencing and you know, help them process that. But um, I, I, I try to support people's natural inclination to quit entirely. And I know, I know that everybody listening, if they're from a 12-step program, they're saying, well, you can't quit, it's not possible. But it's not really what the evidence says. The, the evidence says that more people quit on their own than they do inside the 12-step programs. And so it is possible. And um, I, I direct people in that direction. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that's, that's good. And what would you say um, about labels? So I know like in recovery and stuff, you say, like I'm an alcoholic and I've yeah been sober for so long. Um, I know you refer to somewhere that you don't like counting the days. Well, I don't think we should define our identities around 
um, around a weakness or around an illness that hasn't really been proven. Like there's not really any scientific evidence that alcoholism is a disease. There's not. And so I, I think that it's a mistake to define our identities around that. I think it encourages a sense of helplessness and powerlessness, which is the approach that, you know, the 12-step programs consciously and purposely take, right? Um, so my, my work is really antithetical to that. That's why I tell people if, some people say, well, can I do both? And I'll, I'll say, I don't think you should. I think if the 12 steps are working for you, you should stay with the 12 steps because I, I, my work undermines that in some respects. And if the 12 steps are really life-saving for you, then you know, stay there. Um, what was the original question? Tell me one more time. The original question was just um, a sense of, you know, when people label themselves as an addict, even if they're like in recovery for ages. And also about counting days of how long you haven't used them. Yeah, I, I, I don't think that, I think it's okay for people to use time as a marker privately to encourage, I mean, the research does indicate that keeping track of streaks is motivating and forming new habits to, to a certain point, like maybe 90 days. Um, but I don't think that they should use it as a public badge of honor. I, I think that's similar. I, I think that people should strive to think of eating healthy it's just a part of being a normal functioning member of society. And so if I say, you know, oh, hi, I'm Glenn, and I'm a red light running aholic, and I haven't run a red light for 90 days, and everybody stands up and goes, yay, Glenn, you can kind of see that that's the wrong idea. I'm just expected not to run red lights. It's part of living in this world. And I think that we should strive to eat healthy is just part of living in the world, not necessarily define our whole identities and look for recognition because we have been eating healthy. It's, it's good to eat healthy. If you want your friend to give you a pat on the back once in a while, it's okay. But to stand up in the town square and say, this is who I am, this is my identity, um, I think it leads to a sense of, um, of powerlessness and the sense that anything could collapse at any time, which I think undermines people's confidence. Look, I'm so sorry, I'm gonna have to go in about 68 seconds. No, yeah, that's absolutely fine. That's absolutely fine. Um, yeah, just let us know sort of where we can find you. Um, any more information about your sort of philosophy and stuff. Um, and yeah, thanks oh, very much for your time. So if you go over to neverbingeagain.com and um, if there's anything you really hated about this interview, you probably shouldn't do this. <laughs> but, but at neverbingeagain.com, you can get a free copy of the book. Just click on the um, reader's bonus. You should get a free electronic copy, Kindle, Nook, PDF. I've created food plan templates, starter templates that you can customize for any diet that you happen to follow. So low carb, high carb vegetarian, meat eaters, whatever it is. And I've recorded a whole bunch of coaching sessions so you can hear what it's like to actually do this in, in practice. It um, can be a harsh sounding theory in, in reality, but it's, um, it's actually, in theory it sounds harsh, but it's actually a soft thing. So neverbingeagain.com. Luke, I'm going to run and take that. I'm so sorry. No worries, no worries. Thanks okay. very much for your time. I'll speak to you later. Thank you. Okay. As always, thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share and I really wish you well on your journey to serenity.